Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 15. This week, we talk with Dan Rosanova about Azure Event Hubs and scaling to millions of devices. The single question for the most successful technical interview. Scaling to 560 million page views each month on only 25 servers. And lots of XAML resources for building amazing apps. Hey guys, this is Jason Young, and introducing my co-host, the amazing, the stupendous, the MVP, the VIP, the beard, (laughs) Carl Schweitzer. How's it going, Carl? Pretty good, Jason. Uh, how was your vacation? <laughs> it was good. Yeah, I was gone all last week. I was off in uh, Pennsylvania, so I, w- I drove through a whole bunch of states. Um, most of my family lives out there. So I was off the grid for a few days, as you know. I, th- I think you ended up sending me a couple messages, but uh, I didn't have access to any kind of good Wi-Fi, and I had basically one bar of service the whole time. So I, I think that was actually good, though. Like, that kept me, uh, that actually gave me a, a good a good break. Yeah, I tend to take a vacation up in, in into an area of northern Wisconsin that doesn't get any kind of uh, wireless cell reception like that either. And it's it's nice just to get away sometimes from what you normally do. Yeah, it's definitely a lot easier to chill. So with us today, we have Dan Rosanova. And uh, um, so welcome, Dan. Hi, thanks for having me. So we'll be talking to him a little bit later um, about Event Hubs, Azure Event Hubs. Um, but for now, let's uh, jump into the news. So the first story we have here, uh, how I ended up conducting the most successful technical interviews with a single question. I thought this was an interesting article and I'll spare you the, the entire article, but the question that, that he, uh, this guy that, that wrote this post, what he learned was the, the most effective interview question after interviewing, I think hundreds of people he was talking about was, will you please tell me about the best project that you've ever created? And it's sort of an ad hoc question that you know, let's, let's the, uh, the person being interviewed really feel at ease and, and talk about something cool that they worked on instead of all these programming challenges and all these other high stress, uh, challenges. And I know you, yeah. you, you like this article too, right, Carl? Yeah. And, and being somebody, you know, like any one of us who's been through quite a few interviews, um, I I've really had two interviews that have used this technique and I ended up joining both of those companies. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I even interviewed at, for a senior developer position at a company where the interview questions were on this whiteboard, you know, uh, write the function to reverse a string. I'm like, really? I, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to, for a senior dev position. You want me to, I mean, all the questions they asked were, did you pass college? Nice. Nice. Yeah. They, and, and reversing a string, you know, I always wonder too, if they let you use, uh, did they let you use any kind of utility methods you wanted? Yeah, they said do anything that I wanted to. I mean, I, I mean, I yeah. used to, you know, internally used a stack to do it. But um, yeah, I'm just I mean, thinking like if if I really have to do that and it's not a high performance situation, I'm doing like a two array and then array dot reverse and then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, turn it back new string. <laughs> so that's yeah, that, but, that's funny. But those technical ones really, I mean, a lot of times they're they're either trick questions or they're they're ones that ask you to do things that you're not going to do anyways. Right, right. I know that Microsoft was famous for this for the longest time, all these these trick questions, and a lot of them didn't even have answers. And it was to see how somebody, you know, worked their way through a problem. But, you know, the challenge always is it's, it's such a high stress situation. So, hey, Dan, I know that you uh, um, you went through this process recently, so I, I don't know if you had any trick questions or or if it was a little bit more practical. Uh, no, no trick questions at all. It was uh, very practical. It was actually quite fun. Um, except that it was, you know, it's a very long day. Yeah. So, uh, that, that part's a little, you're right, a little stressful there, but, um, 
yeah, no, no, no silly code things like that. No, no college level stuff. Yeah. I'm not sure what, what you get out of someone doing that unless the position calls for somebody who can code under stress. And other than, uh, uh, what was that? What was that movie where the guy had to to hack the, the Pentagon, you know, under a whole bunch of stress. I can't remember what that was, but, uh, you know, that's pretty much the only job that requires that as swordfish, wasn't it? Yeah. I yeah. Think so. <laughs> so unless you have that job, I, I, I don't think, uh, I don't think that's necessary. I did hear about some companies that actually do some, some pair programming. And I, I think that might've been mentioned in this article as well, where you, you actually do some, some pair programming, um, you know, with the person, uh, for a whole day or for part of a day on an actual pro actual problem. And that might be a little, a little less stressful, but, but still, I don't, I don't know how good of a view of that person you're actually getting. Yeah. I mean, he even had the insight too, that said, you know, when I asked some of these questions, mm-hmm. I didn't even know the answer. And I was just hoping that they wouldn't ask any follow-up questions because yeah. I wouldn't have any idea about that. Yeah. I have a whole list of questions in my head that, you know, I hope I never get asked during an interview and, you know, not just like the, what is your greatest weakness, but you know, some of the, some of the programming questions I get, I'm not quite sure if I could figure them out on the fly. I know ahead of time, if I, if I thought it through and a little bit less stressful situation, I could figure it out and memorize it. But you know, I don't know what the value in that is anyway. So the, the next article here, this one is interesting. Um, stack overflow update. So this is from, I think the site is, it is high scalability.com. I actually like this site quite a bit. What they do is they, they dive into the architectures of these, you know, massive sites so these, these sites that have a different class of problems than, than most of us have. And in, in this one, um, they talk about how they have to handle uh, 560 million page views a month. And they're doing it with only 25 servers. And they, they just walk through and they talk about this. So some of the stats in here. Um, so they have 110 sites and the Stack Exchange Network. Let's see, 4 million users, 8 million questions, 40 million answers. Um, it's the 54 number 54 for the most site traffic in the world. And they are growing, you know, they're still growing at a, at a crazy rate. I'm sure you've done searches and, and, you know, for programming questions and this comes out, this comes up in pretty much any kind of search. Um, so did, did you look through all the details in this one, Carl? I, I looked through most of them. I, I've yeah. heard uh, Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky talk about their infrastructure before. And, you know, this seemed to be right in line with exactly what they've said they've been doing all along. Right. And I've talked to their engineers too, and they don't have, they just have a few uh, database servers. They have one thing that was interesting. I think they said they have four levels of caching in here. Um, so they're, you know, they're just really intelligent about how they cache that data. The the other thing that I think is key, and I've, I've actually, whenever I was talking to the engineer, he, he, you know, he confirmed what I was talking about, but this has been my experience. Whenever you're talking to SQL server, I've seen systems where you know, people put a whole bunch of logic into the store procedures and you really make SQL server jump through all these hoops and do things that it shouldn't be doing. But if you're just, you know, doing what SQL server does best, which is just running queries, you know, saying, give me this data based off these indexes, it scales to, you know, crazy, crazy high levels. And I think this is a really good example of that. They, they still, even with all their caching, they can run, you know, he was saying often they'll run 20, 30 queries on a single page and they all, they all only take a few milliseconds and SQL server has no, no problem managing, you know, thousands of concurrent requests for those, those small queries. Um, another thing they said in here that they're using a lot of SSD. I know at one point they, they built their own server, so I'm not sure if they still do that or not. 
Um, I believe so. Yeah, they love throwing a ton of memory in here. So they are, you know, they're really building, um, you know, a custom system for for what they're doing. Although, and I, I think there's a, a ton of stuff you can learn off of this one. So I recommend everybody check it out and, and dive into the details here. But then in general, this highscalability.com, I go out here every once in a while just to see, you know, how the big guys do it. Because I've looked at uh, Netflix, they got eBay out here. Um, and and what's interesting is whenever you start looking at these crazy huge sites, what you'll see is that they're they start breaking the rules. You know, all the all the things that you think that you have to do, you know, like you know having uh, relationships in your database, they start to break all those types of rules, and and things get really interesting at these levels. That's an interesting point because scale yeah. itself is a challenge. Right. Right. And there was a somebody tweeted it was a DHH. Uh, I think it was a day or two ago. Uh, he was mentioning that, you know, if you're starting a company, it's it's a big challenge because you you start your system with a certain architecture. And if you try to use, you know, an architecture that would work, that would be featured on highscalability.com, it doesn't work for the smaller sites. You know, there's there's two different architectures there. And I think that that's a you know, that's an interesting challenge that you have is to not get ahead of yourself but also don't paint yourself in a corner as far as, as far as scaling. I think that's an area where uh, platform as a service is going to have a big impact in the future, but that has so far has sort of been the, the laggard of the three sort of cloud uh, architectures. Right, right. Uh, so let's move on to some phone news here. So you have a couple articles here, Carl. So the first one is UX guidelines for Windows Store apps and Windows Phone apps. I know you were telling me about, uh, about this before the show. You want to talk about this one? Yeah. Oh, you know, one of the things that, you know, I constantly review because, you know, I make my own apps that I publish and, you know, I, I'm not a designer. I don't have that background. So I'm constantly looking at resources to help me out. And this is one of them. It was published by Microsoft. It's, it's a pretty hefty PDF. It's over 400 pages and it's the user guidelines for the Windows Store and Windows phone apps. So what it goes over is it looks at, you know, animations, controls, um, contracts, you know, text, like including how to use typography correctly, um, how to use the, the UI symbols within this uh, Seagull font. Mm-hmm. And for each one of them, it says, you know, these are, an, it gives you an example uh, or it, get, it describes what each item is, you know, what each animation is, what it's best used for, what you should use it for and what you should not do. So, you know, it gives you things like a lot of times you may like, hey, I could use this. If you look at the do's and don'ts, you can say, hey, you know, don't use my settings pane for navigation. You know, that's one of the tips in the don't. You know, sometimes you might think that's, you know, something that you want to do. Mm-hmm. But, you know, by following these, you not only get, you know, better ideas on how to design and lay out your app, but you can make it more consistent with the platform as well. Yeah, I love the way that this document's organized because you can go in here and it's guidelines for pop-up UI animations as an example. So you know, I think whenever you're working in your code, we, we don't, we don't like to think about this stuff too much whenever we're developing, but honestly, the way that this document is laid out, I think this will save you a little bit of time because whenever you're working on that particular feature, just go to that particular section in the document and it'll tell you exactly what to, what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Yep. And you can look in the, uh, the contents on exactly what you're looking for. Like if you're making a lens aware app, you can mm-hmm. look in there and then they have guidelines on how you should lay it out. Right. which a lot of times will save you some of that upfront design process on, you know, how should my app be structured even. So this is a, this is a great resource to just, you know, 
confirm what you want and a, a great starting point to, you know, get ideas and make sure that you're doing something that's, you know, going to fit with the platform. Right. I like the PDF format too, because it's, you can just scroll down. I know on the, the webs, you know, you can find a lot of this stuff on the uh, windows developer site, but what you end up doing is, you know, you're kind of clicking around. It's like, what, what was that under again? And this is searchable. And like you said, it has a nice table of contents. Yeah. And the other thing too, is, uh, when you're looking at these exact, uh, an exact example, they have, um, if it's different for the Windows Store and the Windows Phone, they actually break them out to two different subsections within that topic. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is so, great. Yeah. This is amazing. I'm on page 222. Holy cow. Yeah, he said there's over 400 pages. Yep. But I think so, it's, I don't think it matters that it's that many pages. It's organized very well. No, I only mentioned that just to, you know, explain, you know, this is, it's got a lot of depth and breadth to it. So, you know, there's a good chance that if you're interested in something, it, it, it'll have the content, at least in some form of, you know, how do you use it? What's the, what's the best ways to use typography or, you know, this exact control. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yep. The next thing I want to bring up is something, uh, similar. Um, we'll have a, a link to the, uh, document or the website in the show notes, but it's tips and tricks for uh, using XAML controls in universal windows apps. Mm-hmm. And, um, this is a, a really nice site, uh, uh, article because, uh, there's one thing to share code in the shared portion of your app, but this explains how you share controls and even entire pages in the shared part of a universal app. Mm-hmm. That way you can, uh, you know, use more things in common between the two. You, it'll, it also explains how to use, uh, merge dictionaries to share themes and styles between, uh, the two sides of your app on a universal app. Okay. So this is talking about, yeah, sharing common pages, control styles. So the title is a little bit misleading because it's talking about XAML controls, but it looks like it's for sharing more than that. Does this talk about the code at all? Yes, it does. It explains how it's set up and how to share, share your code and XAML between the two. Okay. Um, and and really it's, it starts with controls, but it moves on to pages and other assets as well. Okay. Yeah. I I like this because this, this is about as, concise as i've seen an article talking about how you actually do this yep and it and it shows with real code examples on how you would implement this yeah so why don't you give a little bit of background on 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 how this actually works i know we've talked about shared projects before but um you know what does this actually look like whenever you you know you can't just write one app that works on a tablet and a phone and that that wouldn't really make sense anyway they're they're different form factors so do you want to talk about shared projects a little bit Sure. So when you do file new project and you pick a universal app, mm-hmm. what, what you're going to see is you're going to see what looks like three projects in your solution. There's a, you know, the name of your app dot windows store, a dot shared and a dot windows phone. And the idea is, is code that's common to both. You write it in the shared portion. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to compile for the windows phone version, it'll compile that code into the windows phone project. When you compile it for the windows store app, it'll compile that into the windows store version. Mm-hmm. This is different than uh, a portable class library because a portable class library, you compile that and you call into that from your other projects. So right. the code in a shared project actually becomes part of the project that's referencing it. Yeah. There's no binary in a shared project. 
Exactly. Yeah. And, and you get a lot more flexibility. This this looks like a, a good go to article for for taking a look at that. So if you haven't worked with shared projects, what I would do is is actually go out and check this out because it's just a real world example of how you actually share things between those projects. Yep. And and this goes, you know, when you look when you do file new project and you pick that template, you know, it has a little bit set up there already. Mm-hmm. But this shows you how to do the types of things that you'll want to do that aren't in that in those pre-made examples as part of that that initial template. Right. Okay. Uh you want to tell me about socializing my app in Windows Phone 8.1? Yeah. So uh this is a a blog post by Cliff Simpkins and he's a, a product manager on the Windows platform team. Um formerly it was he was on the Windows Phone side, but since they've merged, um he's taken on additional responsibilities. And um this is both a blog post and he did a video for channel nine on the exact same topic. They're uh, complimentary. Mm-hmm. It's 12 minutes. So it's pretty short if you want to check that out. And uh, what he essentially shows is how do you add some of the social features and what they are in windows phone 8.1. So uh, what he talks about is um, you can add um, your app as an integ- integration point into the uh, me card into the, a person's contact cards, as well as the photo hub. So if you want to be able to share um, photos or something, you can actually integrate your app into the photo hub. So that's an option when they're in there, it'll launch your app into the appropriate spot and give them that photo information or it'll in the contact card, it'll let you contact somebody socially via that. So if you're making like a Twitter app or a Facebook app or, you know, an Instagram app, you can, get uh, more detailed, you know, integration with the phone itself. Um, right. And some of you this look, you can only do on windows phone, right? Correct. And one thing that's nice, if you look at the video, they have uh, mentioned that there's a, a windows phone app already fourth and mayor. It's pretty much the most popular uh, Foursquare third party app that there is. Mm-hmm. He actually did these integrations and open source that project on GitHub. Oh, that's great. So you can, um, in his blog post, it's, um, he has a link there as well. So if you go there, you can get, you know, that code, look at it and decide if that's something that you want to integrate with your apps as well. Perfect. That's the, that's the big benefit of open source is being able to see those kinds of things. And that, that, that's really good documentation. Just the existence of some, some code that is in production. It works. Yeah. And, and sometimes that's the easiest way to learn things is to, to go through the code yourself and, mm-hmm. Like, like I said, I thought this was a great topic because these are things that maybe you're already doing. You have your app and you have it ready, but, you know, integrating with these, you know, platform specific features really helps get people more into your app. It helps make your app more valuable and easier to use. Excellent. So let's get over to our guest now. So we have, like I mentioned before, Dan Rosanova. So he works on the Azure service bus team. And right now he's focusing on the Internet of Things. So, uh, Dan, do you want to give a little bit of background uh, for us? Sure. I, uh, I'm pretty new to Microsoft, actually. I was a five-time uh, BizTalk and integration MVP before that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been working in distributed computing for about 15 years. And uh, my focus right before coming to Microsoft was really on sort of smart grid and smart meter uh, applications, which is, is a type of Internet of Things, mm-hmm. uh, maybe more of an intranet of things. And uh, now I'm actually working a lot on Event Hub as well. Okay, that's great. And that's why we have you on today to talk about Event Hub. So one interesting thing about Event Hub is that, you know, on, on this show, we have an, uh, an Azure pick of the week. 
And for the past two episodes, it's been Event Hub. <laughs> so uh, we don't have an Azure pick of the week. So we'll just say that Event Hub is uh, is our is our third third week running. It's the pick of the week. So uh, well, it's, that, that's it how much we like it. Yep, exactly. <laughs> um, so so your your role at Microsoft. So like you said, you're working on the the Azure Service Bus team. And do you want to explain? You know, so you you're working on the you're focusing on Internet of Things. So you want to describe that a little bit more? Sure. Um, and I'll also, I guess, get into how this fits into Service Bus and Azure and what we're sure. doing talking about the Internet of Things. Uh, so the Internet of Things is actually a, it is not as, as nebulous as it might sound. Uh, it is really just all of the devices, uh, sensors, and uh, small-scale compute around us in our everyday lives. Everything from thermostats and garage door openers to electric meters, uh, you know, things that are really already around you. For instance, your refrigerator at home probably has, actually definitely has a ton of electronics in it, including uh, microcontrollers. Uh, so it's really about enabling these things to all communicate. And this is sort of what brings in Service Bus and, and Azure for this, is that this communication is going to require uh, lightweight distributed messaging. And that's exactly what Service Bus is. So uh, that's sort of brings us into it. Okay. So... So what what really is on a more granular level? What is the Azure Event Hub service? You know, what is behind it, and how would a developer look at it? You bet. Uh, the Event Hub service is a hyperscale uh, event ingestion uh, service, PaaS service. And when I say hyperscale, I really do mean some some really serious scale. We can talk about numbers in a minute. Um, and when I say event event ingester, I mean that if you look at a sort of pipeline of how you would process events or telemetry or something like that. Uh, there are about four or five stages in it. Uh, so you have things creating messages. These could be applications, mobile apps, uh, little sensors and devices. You need to collect those together. That's the ingester service there. That's Event Hub. Uh, and then you need to do things with those. So you might want to write them to storage. You might want to do complex event processing or stream processing on them. Uh, and then from there, you probably want to surface them up to users. So that would be sort of the, the last stage in the pipeline uh, so that they can do pieces with it. And Event Hub is squarely focused on that event ingestion piece. Okay. So what are what are some interesting applications that you've seen? I, I'm not sure exactly what you can talk about, if you can talk in sort of abstract terms. But what are uh, what are some good applications of this? Absolutely. The, the, the kind that I think is, is actually relevant to today's discussion and probably the, the most immediate need for this sort of uh, service has to do with large-scale uh, websites and applications. Uh, if you look at really high-scale uh, applications, and I think Stack Overflow is probably a decent example, uh, they're probably uh, not pinning users to specific sessions on specific nodes. They've probably got a lot of pieces going on. Um, and it, it can be okay. It can be fairly easy for them with a good engineering to figure out the health of their overall application, but it becomes harder to figure out the experience of individual users within that. And that's because of the, the logs for, uh, each piece of my interaction with an application are going to be spread over a bunch of different machines. And Event Hub is something that can be used to reassemble those, uh, into a, uh, in order, uh, stream that is much easier to process and get my user experience out. So rather than just ap application health, you can start looking at sort of uh, user experience and interaction, um, and you can you can do this at, at really tremendous scale. So let's talk about that example. So let's say that that I'm running Stack Overflow and I want to incorporate this. So are are you saying that you know for all the various 
you know, if I want to track all the various user interactions, you know, the things that they're clicking on, um, the decisions that they're making, maybe some log messages is, is this what I would, is that what I would use this for? Um, certainly, especially if more than just the things they're clicking on, if you wanted to get deeper into when they click this, uh, and this request is made, uh, follow its trace through the different levels of their cache mm-hmm. and ultimately back to its, uh, origin. Uh, and that's, you know, there you're jumping process boundaries, you're jumping between machines, and that's going to be harder and harder to trace without a tool like this, which is sort of a common, uh, event publishing, uh, sort of service. Mm-hmm. All right. As I was looking at, you know, some of the overviews for uh, this service, you know, I came across a lot of different terminology. There's, you know, terms like publisher, consumer, partitions, offsets. Can you walk us through a little bit of, you know, what these are? So, you know, when the listeners go through it, they might have a little bit of better understanding of these to help them understand what event hubs, you know, really can provide for them. Absolutely. Um, I think I'd start off with saying that event hubs are sort of a, a sibling to queues and topics. It is a messaging uh, service like those with uh, different use cases. And those use cases really do revolve around uh, uh, the core piece here being that instead of a competing consumer model that the first two have, uh, event hubs is, is not. It's a partition consumer model. Uh, so that it's a, it's a slightly different, uh, tool and you would use it for different pieces and when we walk again through sort of that pipeline you would have publishers are going to be the the things creating events whether that's mobile apps whether that's services on a server somewhere or devices in the field uh, they're going to actually be pushing events out to event hub uh, to them it's just one big thing it's just an event hub within that event hub uh, this is how the scale of event hub all works is through partitions uh, so all of those events are going to go live in specific partitions. And there are some things you can do to, to use this partition concept to your advantage for processing an event stream. Um, and then after that, uh, there is the concept of consumer groups. This one took me a while to get uh, because this is not a competing consumer model. Uh, the, the consumption happens in a different way, and that's uh, reading off the partitions. And uh, a consumer group, you, the best way to think about it would be an application. So if you had an application which is cold storage, long-term storage, that would be a consumer group. So you would read from the event hub from all the partitions in parallel for cold storage. And now if you also had sort of stream processing or real-time complex event processing like a fraud detection algorithm, that would be a second consumer group. And the Mm -hmm. advantage here is that they can read at their own pace and whatever is appropriate for them. Uh, the, The checkpointing piece that came in or offsets that's sort of where in this message stream you are, because unlike uh, cues and topics, you can actually go backwards in this stream and replay it. Okay, so let's dive into the terminology a little bit more. So um, I, while you're going through that, I, I had a couple of questions pop into my head. So the, the publishers, um, you mentioned sort of a, it's not like a smaller number of publishers, but um, can you go from, could there be one publisher and could there be a million publishers? Yeah, actually, I think uh, the two biggest use cases, I mentioned the application one, will be a smaller number. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the place where, over time, I think Event Hub will have the most impact is uh, in many, many publishers that are probably publishing less messages, but uh, a whole lot more. Uh, the service itself is designed to uh, do a million authentications per second. 
okay. uh, on a single event hub or up to. Um, that's you know that's not in the preview right now, mm-hmm. but uh, it's certainly our design benchmark internally. Uh, so yes, literally millions of devices putting out messages uh, and being able to read them through in a very short amount of time. Okay, and then you mentioned consumers, and and that was very interesting um, because if you're familiar with uh you know cues what ends up happening is some messages come in and then there's something processing those and and i, I could be getting this wrong and I'll, I'll let you correct me but it seems like you you have sort of a competition until partitioning comes into play you have sort of a competition to pull items out of a queue um you know you have something that pulls a couple messages out and then a, another can you know another process can pull a couple more messages out and that's sort of that's sort of how that works and then whenever you get into a topic that's where that's more of a publish subscribe model. And it sounds like this is even a little bit different than both of those. You know, you mentioned being able to go through at, at a, at a different rate and it, it's saving some of those messages. Did I, did I get that right? Yeah, you did. And it, it is published subscribe, but it's not with a competing consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess it's one step beyond what you would get from topics from a published subscribe standpoint. Um, okay. And, uh, Yes, you can have different destinations. Those are the consumer groups. But within those consumer groups, uh, each reader just reads from one partition. Uh, so there's a leasing mechanism internal. Uh, our client API for, for .NET makes this very easy to work with because it handles all the leasing for you. Uh, and this is what enables you to really just auto-scale out. So uh, some of the code examples show this, and it's it's pretty slick. It took me a while to realize what a what an impressive job our engineering team had done with this. Because mm-hmm. it just looks so simple that you don't think it's really doing what it is. And it's behind the scenes creating threads and readers for each of the partitions. And so if you, in a worker role, for instance, you're reading out of an event hub at a consumer group, you stand up another worker role, so you you scale it up in the Azure portal, they automatically renegotiate their leases and the, the load spreads over the two worker roles. And that just keeps happening if you scale up more and more. Okay. So how do you actually get data into event hubs? So uh, the two two avenues into event hubs are uh, HTTP, uh, which is one, uh, but our preferred one usually for sort of long haul messaging is AMQP, the Advanced Message Queuing Protocol. That's uh, the native protocol of all the service bus components. Yeah, we're a big fan of you know baking security in from the beginning. How does security work on event hubs? So this is where Event Hub actually starts to get really interesting, uh, is that you can get, it's, it's using SaaS-based security, and you can get very, very fine-grained, not just security, but also... Do you want to define SaaS-based security? Um, Shared access long? signature? Yes. I was going to say... <laughs> I just want to, yeah, I just, I want to make sure our listeners understand. Okay. Sorry. I uh, got, got a little too deep there uh, in my own head. Uh, so uh, what, what the SAS will let us do is uh, create tokens really at a per URI basis. So even though, let's say, there's an event hub called X, uh, you can actually, each device can send to a URI that extends past just that X, and uh, they can get a SAS token that's just for that URI. And that way, only the, the, the device, the sender, with that token can actually, with that key, can actually send to that place. Um, so we get really fine-grained security control, and not just security, but also this concept of publisher policy, which uh, we may have taken out of the documentation. I don't know, but it's going to be going back in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is that you can set sort of limits and throttling 
on a per sender or per publisher basis uh, so that you can't have one rogue sender sort of DOS your entire uh, event infrastructure. Ah, that's interesting. Now, you mentioned that each device can have its own access, right? So they, so it, you know, your, your, each device has, has access to its sort of own inbox outbox, right? Uh, really just an outbox. That's all. Okay. Cause I know, uh, Clemens Vasters, he's, he's talked about that before the, the model of using the, the inbox and outbox where, you know, one, one way to isolate or one way to secure these devices is to just isolate them from all the other ones. Instead of having them have their own IP address, they basically have an inbox and outbox that's sitting up in Azure where they can push data and read data from, um, and it, it keeps them completely isolated from anything else. And it's interesting that you mentioned too, that this has the, the, deni- the denial of service protection for a particular uh, signature as well. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And actually, so I'm, I'm actually working on the Reykjavik project. So, uh, this, this should align very well with what Clemens is, uh, described earlier. Perfect. Yeah. I know he, uh, he went on a podcast, I think it was a few weeks ago, he was talking about that. And, uh, you know, I don't, I, at the time event hubs wasn't public, so I, I think he couldn't, uh, couldn't talk about that at all, but he probably wanted to. I'm sure he did. Yeah. So, um, what let's talk about scale. So we mentioned that this thing can scale to pretty insane levels. So do we want to, can we talk about some of the actual numbers? Sure. Uh, in our, in our public preview, we're a little limited and, uh, that is that we, we have this concept of scale units for event hub. And each scale unit is uh, one megabyte per second of inbound uh, events mm-hmm. uh, and two megabytes per second of outbound events. Um, and, and that's sort of with a benchmark of one kilobyte size events. So basically a thousand in uh, per second. Uh, in, the, in the public preview, you can have 10 of these scale units. So you can do sustained 10 megabytes of uh, telemetry inbound. Um, and that's each, so 10,000 messages per second, each with their individual authentication. Uh, we do have a call us sort of model, and we can scale that up um, if you really, really need it. Um, and not that this is going to be something you can just get through the portal. You'll have to talk to us. Uh, we can actually go up to 1,000. So that's a gigabyte per second. Okay. A full gigabyte per second. That's that's pretty impressive scale. Yeah, if you can send us that much, it'd be pretty impressive too. <laughs> yeah, I, I know that... Uh, I, I was uh, um, part of a project where, where they were trying to make some simulated data and send it up there. And it, it was definitely a challenge. Unless you have, you know, a million devices actually out there, it's really tough to even generate that much fake data. So that's that's very, very impressive scale. And whenever I'm talking about Azure to people, I'm I, you know, I always mention that since it is a service, um, you know, I'm not making any promises as to um, increases in scale, but this stuff, I mean, it only gets better. It, you know, the scale never goes down. Right. So, um, again, I'm not making any promises, but I, I could see in the future where this just keeps getting higher and higher as, you know, as, as we figure out as computing power gets higher and as we figure out new ways to, to, you know, keep scaling this. So this is a, you know, really good for, for building a, an application. These are just, just a ton of data. Uh, absolutely. And I, I think the, the real, power of this is is a PaaS offering. Mm-hmm. You don't need to do auto scale. You don't need to go in and do anything. Right. It's it's just there and it will handle the scale if it becomes an issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at the beginning of the show we talked about how this compares slightly to service bus queues and topics. 
But what role do these uh, other Azure services play out now with the existence of event hubs? And how does someone know when to choose one or the other? Uh, that's actually a very good question that we're internally debating with the engineering team, and we're, we're revamping <laughs> our documentation a little bit. Uh, we have some very good ideas about that, but um, and that's kind of my fault. We haven't been as good about sharing them as we need to be. Uh, there are some comparisons on the MSDN documentation, but we want to move those front and center. Uh, it really depends on what you're trying to accomplish. So uh, sometimes competing consumer model is bad, and sometimes it's good. Uh, for instance, uh, if you have to uh, enforce at, uh, once and only once messaging, you can't really do that with Event Hub. You get at least once messaging, uh, but you might want to do things that are once and only once, and both queues and topics can let you do that. Uh, so, so that could be right. really important if you're doing something like a financial transfer. You probably only want it to transfer once. Right. <laughs> unless it's my deposit. Yeah, unless you're receiving the money. <laughs> so let's talk about that. So how how do you process data from from event hubs? What you know, what does the code look like? And then, you know, what I know there's like a retention period for that data. Um, and I know you talked about the delivery mechanism, but how do you actually process that data? Uh sure. The processing that data, you basically have to connect an AMQP channel uh mm -hmm. to uh one of the partitions. So you have to see how many partitions there are. Uh, connect to them and start reading out from that AMQP channel. So that's basically a AMQP subscription right there. Um, it, it's actually much easier if you use our, our .NET client API because then all you have to do is uh, instantiate this event processor host class and implement one interface which has three methods uh, that you register with this class in your .NET runtime and it takes care of everything else. Now under the hood that's using AMQP? Yes. And and just for the for the listeners, that's basically a protocol for for this type of service, right? That's an open protocol for sending and receiving messages. Yeah, it's a ISO and Oasis standard protocol. Mm -hmm. And uh, we actually do a lot of interoperability with that. So we, we tested ourselves with Cupid, Apache Cupid. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, yeah, it's a messaging sort of binary wire level protocol. Right. Which yeah. makes it really easy to both publish and read from Event Hub, even if you're on uh, things like uh, Hadoop on Linux. So if you have Storm on Linux, you can read from Event Hub. Yeah, and I've seen examples of AMQP, you know, using like Node.js, where, you know, it's fairly easy to put a message in there. So it sounds like you can, at, at both ends, you can, you can also pull that data out in a standard way. So this is, you know, much like a lot of the Azure services, this really is not specific to .NET. It just, if you, if you are using .NET, that's going to be the easiest experience, but it doesn't have to be that way. Absolutely. Okay, perfect. Now, now looking at this compared to some of Amazon's offerings, it looks like this competes pretty closely with Amazon's Kinesis. What are, how does it compare actually between the, its com main competitive service? Uh, so the two biggest differences, yeah, Kinesis is a funny one. We'd actually started working on, uh, uh, event hub before Kinesis was announced. Um, but we, you know, we wanted to make sure that we were ready for serious scale before we, we made any moves on it. Um, the, the two biggest changes or differences, I would say, is that one, uh, our capabilities around the publisher policy are pretty unique. Um, as I've, I've played with Kinesis a little bit and I didn't see anything like that in there, that granularity and, and publisher policy level. Uh, the other is that, um, Kinesis is also sort of supplying its own sort of complex event processing piece. And that's uh, not something 
that, that we're doing. We're, we're giving you the choice of whatever CEP or consumers you want to use. We're not going to, uh, we're not really going to push that hard on that. Right. But like you mentioned, you can pull the, the data out of this with multiple consumers and you can push it into a whole bunch of different locations. So you could use like Azure cloud ML against it. You could run Hadoop against it. Um, there's probably, you know, dozens or hundreds of different services you could run against it. Once you actually have that data stored somewhere. I was going to say, you must be talking to other people on our team because, uh, those are all <laughs> things we're doing. So, Oh, <laughs> I didn't, but it just, it, it makes sense to me, um, based on, uh, based on what's going on. Okay. Um, and then did you talk about the, um, the window of time where you can actually pull that data out? That was, that was interesting to me because you mentioned the, the delivery mechanism, but I know that you, the data will actually sit there for 24 hours, right? It will. And we can actually give you uh, more time than that. We can go up to 30 days. Uh, we, it's at a day level, basically. So the granularity we specify is at the day. And um, we do have some customers that use that to do replay mm-hmm. uh, so they can see how their models, their stream processing models would have changed uh, if they, you know, how they would have worked if they changed them. Uh, so that's a pretty cool feature. Uh, but you can imagine at, at scale of a gigabyte per second, you could get some pretty big size uh, very quickly. And uh, we actually have a, a technical ability on a single event hub to store uh, two and a half uh, petabytes of data. Oh, wow. That's pretty impressive. So you end up, you have this this window of data there. And we I know we talked about the offset. So what you end up doing is you're you're reading through these messages and and storing this this offset and then if, if something goes wrong, you could always sort of rewind and, and replay those messages, right? Uh, yes, you can. And you can also uh, uh, tell the service sort of where you are, and uh, it will discard the messages before that. Oh, okay. Also, you can, you can sort of permanently delete them then off of that window? or Yeah, it's called okay. checkpointing. Okay. Okay, this is, this is really cool. I, I recommend anybody who is... Uh, you know, doing anything with, with internet, the internet of things, check something like this out. Cause this is pretty key. Um, I know in on the, some past episodes, we've talked about the internet of things. And the reason that I brought up event hub a few times is I just see this as a, as a key to centralizing that data because everybody is running their own service. I shouldn't say everybody, but most of the services I see, you know, they're look at like the, um, Phillips hue, I guess I, I don't know a ton about how they work, but you know, you buy, you buy this light bulb and then you go get the app and then you can control the light bulb from the app. And that, that's all great. But whenever you start adding in sensors and things like that, you know, they'll sort of work with each other. And some of these systems now are starting to get a little bit more open, but, uh, you know, one of the, uh, some of the big value is doing some of this analysis and, and getting this into a central place because anytime it's just on your phone or it's on that device, I don't consider that reliable. That's, that's temporary. So getting it into something like this is great because once you hand this off to event hub, and, and I guess this is a question for you. Once I hand this off to event hub, I can be sure that that data is, is safe, right? Absolutely. Okay. And then you know, like we mentioned, we have that, that sort of runway on the, on the outbound data with the offset where we can, we can checkpoint that data so that, we know that we've processed that data at least once. And you said that that data can come in again. So we do need, you know, some kind of, uh, we need to write our code in such a way that if we get the same value or if we get the same record twice that we, we know how to discard that second message or, 
um, you know, ignore it in, in some fashion. Yeah, the, the the place that the at least once comes in is if you have a failover on your readers. Mm-hmm. So the, the partition transitions between two different readers. Uh, if you didn't checkpoint immediately before that, you know, that's how far back you might end up rewinding. Okay. Yeah, so we have um, a list of links of some information that, that, we've, that we found that Carl and I were reading up on ahead of time. We're going to include those in the show notes. Um, if you have some good resources, Dan, uh, feel free to send those our way. Um, we do have a link to the Azure page on the event hubs that gives you a really good introduction. Um, so just let us know if there's any other resources and we'll include those in the show notes. Um, any, anything else you wanted to mention about event hubs? Um, I guess the last thing I did want to say is I, I think you're absolutely correct about uh, your, your uh, uh, instinct that, that this is really something that you should be using, uh, you know, if you're, if you're building some sort of IoT service or, mm-hmm. or some sort of other sort of service that, you know, you don't necessarily need to show the world that you're using event hubs, uh, but we've figured out how to do this pretty well. And if, you're, if you need this service, it's probably a lot easier than building your own. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's a lot easier to use than people think. Even one of the articles that we found was was a was getting started with Azure um, event hubs, and the code. I mean, there was I don't know how much code was there, Carl. A couple dozen lines of code to actually use this thing, if that. Yeah, it was pretty small. Yeah, it was. I mean, I looked at it, and I mean, there's like two different classes. I think there's there's one class for pushing the data and one for getting it out. It's it's really is that simple to use. So if you're building some kind of application, you may as well, um, you know, put this into your project and have it push that data up. Uh, so Carl, looks like we have uh, multiple apps of the week. Yeah, I think we just ran into a bunch of really good <laughs> things this week. Yeah, there's too much, too um, much good stuff for one week. So the first one is um, I always enjoy having a great Twitter app. I I live on Twitter. That's where I get a lot of my my news from and. Uh, previously, I had a the Windows uh, store version of an app called Tweetium, mm-hmm. and the developer recently pushed out a Windows Phone version of the same app. And what's exciting about this is I'm not sure if he's using the universal app per se, but he's using the features that are exposed through there to link the store app with the phone app. And if you've purchased the store app, that flows down through into the phone app as well. So since I had purchased the original one, I, I got the paid version of this app automatically. Okay. So that that was really cool. Um, it's a fairly well done uh, Twitter app. Um, a few unique features with it, but um, anybody who wants a really solid one, check it out and support the developer. Yeah, I just bought it. It's two ninety nine currently. Yep, so and he actually has a a pretty unique monetization model. Uh, just because Twitter does uh limit the amount of keys a developer can have um as he sells more and more of these the price is going to go up and up so if you want it at the you know the cut rate um buy it now yeah that's that's pretty cool that 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 is that is such an interesting model um you know like you said there's a limited number of api keys so and and he does want to keep supporting this app so that allows him to do it yeah that'll be interesting because i mean conceivably let's say he's got you know, a thousand API keys left. This thing could become, you know, it could be a hundred bucks to, to buy mm-hmm. it. And the people who really, really want it might end up paying a hundred bucks and it's just going to keep going up as, as it goes. So, so yeah, your, your best shot is I would get it now before the price goes up. Now I, I think, you know, he, there's quite a few API keys available. So this isn't going to happen in a week. I think it's been two ninety nine for, for a know, while, for, a, for few a few months. months. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I did just buy cause 
the the recent version of the the Twitter app for Windows Phone. Um, I don't know. Do you ever use that one? Or are you always in Tweetium? The only thing that the Twitter app from Twitter does really well is notifications. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, responding to notifications, I I use Tweetium. Okay, yeah, because the 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 regular official Twitter app. They made all the tweets gigantic now. So on my 1520, which is a 1080p screen, I can only see like four tweets on the screen at a time. Oh, so they didn't scale it properly. Excellent. Yeah, it, <laughs> uh, it, it got worse. I mean, like the, the last bill, because they put these giant buttons under every tweet or yeah, under every tweet for the for the retweet reply. Those those buttons got gigantic. So, I mean, it's literally on my 1520, which is a six inch phone. It's like the biggest phone in the world. Um, I can fit like four tweets on there. So I, that's, that's why I'm buying this one. So let's yep, talk the, about, I'll go ahead. Yep. The next uh, app that I had chose uh, just because it was so timely and it was something that was promised at build is the live lock screen beta. Now what this is, is when you have a standard lock screen right now, um, the most that happens with the integration is, you know, somebody's allowed to swap out the picture, put text on there. And then when you, you know, as per the function of the lock screen, as you swipe up, it fades out. What this does is it provides additional opportunities for animation and effects, you know, and displaying that information than what's uh, allowed out of the box. Um, unfortunately, there is not any uh, developer APIs to use these, but this is Microsoft's example. They hired um, uh, one of their MVPs, yeah, Rudy, Rudy Wynn. Yep. Rudy Wynn, he's, yep. he's known for doing, uh, uh, you know, six tag um, and... 610 and, and a bunch of other apps uh, making great third-party uh, applications and he did this um it is a little buggy yet that's why it's still in beta but they are uh in the process of taking feedback and improving them mm-hmm. yeah a couple tips with this app so i i installed it and it it disables kid corner or kids corner which i use quite a bit so kids corner on windows phone what what it does is you swipe to the right instead of swiping up to unlock and it shows a limited list of apps and it, it locks down the phone so that the kids, you know, they can only play those apps, which is pretty handy because uh, I have a two year old. So this <laughs> disables kids corner. So I want to get rid of it. So I uninstalled it. And what that did, that actually sort of messed up my phone because every time I would take it out of standby, it would say the phone would say resuming and it would do that for about three seconds, which is which is really, really frustrating. <laughs> so I actually reinstalled the program and what you do, you can actually go into kids corner and you re-enable it and it pops up and says, well, this will disable your custom lock screen. And I, I told it, yes, that's okay. And then that's that's how you can actually disable this. But in any case, if you if you want to see these things, if you don't use Kids Corner, then I recommend putting it on because it, it's pretty cool how they, um, you know, sort of the, the animations and it gives you an idea of what you can do. And I suspect once you can make, you know, once once this gets opened up, you're going to see some really, really cool lock screens out there. This that's pretty just the the idea of doing this is really exciting. Yeah, um, it really shows a lot of potential and it's just kind of the tip of the iceberg of what's available. Mm-hmm. So I actually had an app of the week this week. Um, so my my pick of the week is uh, is Uber. And I my understanding is this came out a year ago and for whatever reason, it, it disappeared for a while and now it's back again. And in the meantime, what I had done is I had pinned m.uber.com and that worked pretty good, but it's still not, a, it wasn't the same as having the, the native app on there. Um, so yeah. for those not familiar with Uber, it's, um, you know, I, I talk, I talk to people about this all the time. I finally tried this. It was just a, a few months ago that I first tried this. 
whenever you get a taxi, the, the experience is just terrible. Um, you know, the, the cars usually are, are, are never that clean. Um, you, you never quite know if they take credit cards and if they say they take credit cards, I've had them say, uh, well, you can, can you pay me ca- uh, cash? I need to get some gas. You know, do they, do, it just seems like a lot of shady things going on. And then the, the, the entire experience is just terrible. So I, I gave Uber a try. And the reason that they're so popular is, you know, you go on here, you push a button, it uses your GPS and a car shows up. And, you know, my experience has been like three minutes. They show up. It's usually nice, you know, a nice clean car. And the, the reason that, that the experience is better is because you're actually rating the drivers. So, you know, somebody showed up in a nice vehicle. I, I used this recently in Palo Alto. And uh, so the guy showed up and I said, do you, you know, do you do this full time? And he said, he said, no, I'm a software tester by day which I, I got such a, a, a kick out of. So he was just earning some extra money. He'd flip on the, the Uber app and he had some water in the back and he, you know, he's just like, yeah, are you comfortable? You know, do you need anything? And th- he was actually incentivized to, to make a good experience so that he'd get a good rating. And, and that's really, that's why these types of services are, are, um, you know, really changing the landscape. And, what I'd like to see is I'd like to see this start changing the the taxi service, you know, so that they start to do the same thing where you, you can, if you can start to give feedback to these, to these drivers and other people can see that feedback, I think you're going to start to see a change. The other thing is every time I've used Uber, it's been about half the price of a taxi. So that's been, Oh, a that's pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. It's been a pretty significant savings. So, um, yeah, yeah when, from my understanding too, that the driver can also rate you as a passenger. Yeah, I was always wondering about that, and I I just found that out there was a there was actually a hack to to see what your rating was, and I I never used it, and they they just plugged that hole. I think it was yesterday or today. Um, so yeah, you you better be a, a good passenger, otherwise they're going to rate you poorly, and then they're not going to want to pick you up. So uh, Dan, how can people find you and uh, more information? You know, if they want to get a hold of you, how do they find you? Um, I guess, uh, any contact through the service bus, uh, website will ultimately come to me and, okay. uh, my Twitter handle is Dan Rose Nova. So that's okay. probably the easiest way. I'm a little addicted to that. So I'm checking it frequently. Okay, perfect. And then it looks like you have a blog out here as well too. I do. It needs some love. <laughs> that happens. You know, people, people go through phases. looks like you have some, there's good content out here though. So you'll, uh, you'll get back to it. I will. Um, so we'll include a link to both of those in the show notes. Uh, if you want to send feedback to the show, you can do that at feedback at msdevshow.com. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Um, and then make sure that you subscribe to the show. Uh, in your podcast app, you can search for MS Dev Show. And in, uh, in basically any podcasting app, we should show up. If we don't, uh, send us an email and we'll figure out how we get in there. Uh, you can find me at ytechie.com. On Twitter, you can find me at twitter.com slash ytechie. And how do they find you, Carl? I can be found at wpwguy.com as well as twitter.com slash Carl Schweitzer. Perfect. So thank you so much for being on, Dan. We really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you.